you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 13. The text is printed in the bulletin for you. And there are a couple of Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Psalm 13. And I've used this illustration before, but it was like last week, so you guys wouldn't remember. Um, no, it was actually like three years ago, so there's no way you would remember. Uh, <clears throat> um, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, of course you know, I quote that a lot. I'm telling you, you can learn a lot about life from the Chronicles of Narnia. Everybody knows about Aslan. Uh, I actually discovered Stephen King wrote Aslan into one of his books lately. Um, uh, everybody knows about Aslan. He's the great lion. He's the king of the world. He's the son of the emperor beyond the sea who was present before time began, who, uh, whose song created the worlds, who saves the children and crowned them uh, high kings and queens of Narnia, who's known by other names in other worlds. Hint, hint. So long ages go by in Narnia, when you're reading the stories, long periods of time uh, go between his appearances, and most of the stories take place actually in his apparent absence. He's not the main character in the story right at the moment. Throughout most of the Chronicles of Narnia, the children, the talking beasts, the dwarves, um, where the focus of the story is, they all wish he was there. They wish he was there all the time, but he very rarely shows up. Sometimes he's gone for such long stretches that the Narnians begin to doubt his goodness. They even begin to doubt his existence. Maybe all these stories about him were just made up, make-believe. Even the faithful are sometimes bewildered. They're asking questions like, where is he? Why doesn't he come back? Doesn't he know he could fix all of this? Where is he? The sense of his absence is lamentable, even when it turns out that actually Aslan was right there all along, sort of in the shadows. We just couldn't quite see him. He's actually very near, watching, knowing everything that was happening. And that sense of being left alone, though, that sense of being abandoned for us by, by God, not just Aslan, right, but by God, that sense is very real. So many people in the scriptures uh, know what that feels like and write about what that feels like, and their, their life is a story of what that is like to have uh, long stretches go by in between um, times when God shows up. The disequilibrium of that, the confusion of that, the difficulty of believing, the insecurity, the desperate fear. Long ages go by in our world between epiphanies, appearances of God. And most of the stories of the scriptures and most of the stories in our lives take place in God's apparent absence. With his people wishing that he was there, that he was more visible to us, something maybe even more tangible. In fact, the Lord Jesus, uh, God come in the flesh, God the most visible, God the most tangible. uh, He's promised to return, but it's been 2,000 years since he was last seen on the earth. And that's not just something to laugh away. It's something where we, we really ask, where is he? Why doesn't he come back? How long, O oh Lord? What do we do with our distress at his apparent absence from the world and the, the sense of absence, the sense that he's gone from us, uh, that we have in our lives a lot of the time? What do we do with that? Um, well, we, we use Psalm 13. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray, 
Then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we, make, uh, we pray that you would make this word of yours not only make sense to us, but uh, become part of our life with you. We pray that you would help us to use this psalm as a prayer. pray that you would help us to remember this psalm as a prayer, especially when things are uh, bleak in our lives, when, when we have a particularly poignant sense of your absence from us and from the world. We pray that you would help us to understand this psalm and to make it our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm assuming that if you're a Christian, this is not a foreign concept to you. You've probably gone through spells of spiritual dryness. You've not known what to do about it because you've just not had a sense of God's presence. Times you felt like God uh, is silent, where his silence or where his absence, apparent absence, are conspicuous, really weighs heavy on you. Times where you've lamented a deep sense of loneliness, spiritual loneliness. Even uh, the ultimate abandonment by God, that he's forgotten you, like the psalmist says, that he's forgotten you or hidden his face from you, seems like he's maybe turned against you and abandoned you. Maybe you've had those, that sense. Um, uh, maybe you've read the, the book, the novel uh, Silence by Shusako Endo. It was made into a film by Martin Scorsese. It was really well done, uh, kind of depressing. Uh, very difficult to watch. Um, but you've got the basic storyline of this, the, the Portuguese priests, there's two of them, going to Japan to find the, uh, their, their priest, another priest of theirs who'd gone as a missionary before them, um, who, with whom communication had suddenly been cut off, and they suspected the worst. They suspected that he was dead because of persecution. So they go, these two Portuguese priests, and Father Rodriguez is one of them, and he, he suffers severe persecution in Japan. He prays for, uh, for God's help, prays fervently for God's help, for the, uh, not just for himself, but for the other Christians who are there being tormented, for them to be delivered from cruel deaths and torture and, uh, and ultimately death in the, at the hands of their persecutors in Japan. But his prayers, his fervent prayers are apparently met with silence because God doesn't miraculously deliver them. God doesn't change the hearts of their captors and their tormentors. Nothing changes. So it seems like God is absent. He's praying with all of his heart and, and he hears nothing in response. And so there's a quote from Father Rodriguez. He says, I feel so tempted to despair. And he's, he's praying this. I feel so tempted to despair. I'm afraid 
The weight of your silence is terrible. I pray, but I'm lost. Or am I just praying to nothing? Nothing, because you're not there. Father Rodriguez concluded that God seemed absent and silent because actually God was absent and silent. He just didn't even exist. That was his conclusion, at least in the moment of this uh, terrible prayer that he's praying. That's the kind of place that your own thoughts will take you. You're wrestling and your own prayers, like your own thoughts, stuff that is generated from inside of you, that's the, the kind of place that, you, that on your own, uh, your thoughts can take you. When the inner turmoil hits, and you're feeling the sense of uh, God's apparent absence, silence, maybe abandonment, that he's forgotten you, when that turmoil hits, unless you know the gospel, you will probably, logically, conclude that God has forsaken you, that maybe he's not even real. The Bible's honest about that temptation. It feels like that pretty frequently in our lives and throughout the lives of all the people recorded in Scripture. It's a real temptation that we face. But that isn't where the biblical prayers of the Psalms leave you. That's where your own thoughts might take you. But that's not where the biblical prayers of the Psalms will take you. The Ark of Psalm 13 that we have right here, it's a short psalm. It's great. Um, It could be used by us frequently. The Ark of Psalm 13 is a, is a movement. It isn't just stuck in lament. It's a movement from lament in the first two verses through petition, that really, really the big ask in the, the middle two verses. And then uh, the last two verses, it moves to a settled and joyful trust in the Lord. That movement is not intuitive for us. You would not go there on your own. You wouldn't follow the arc of Psalm 13 instinctively with your own thoughts, your own wrestlings. You're just not going to go there. That movement is a foreign word that is spoken to us by God to become our prayer that we're supposed to latch onto and make our prayer. More natural to us is the tailspin, it's the downward spiral of depression and despair. Am I just praying to nothing? Nothing. Because you're not there. That is what's natural to us in our default sinful state of unbelief. But God isn't embarrassed by struggles like this. He's not embarrassed when we say to him, you've been absent, you've been silent. You've forgotten me, you've turned your face away from me, you've hidden yourself from me. He's not ashamed to be wrestled with like that, on that level. He has condescended to set up wrestling matches in our lives. Wrestling matches like this one that's happening in Psalm 13. And he's given us prayers like this one, Psalm 13, so that we can grapple with him and then emerge with greater confidence in our relationship with him. So what feels to us like his abandonment, it isn't really abandonment, not at all. It's an opportunity to know him more deeply as our Savior, as he has revealed himself to be. So there in the beginning, the first two verses, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
So the psalmist is suffering. This is a lament. This is a lament. He feels, first, that God has neglected and abandoned him. That's how he feels. He feels the inner turmoil of being stuck with his own thoughts about that, his own, the, the counsel in his own heart. He's stuck there with those thoughts. And he feels this external threat of an enemy that just seems wrong. It seems wrong and it shouldn't be that way. It seems unjust. But first and greatest and most importantly is his sense of God's apparent absence. Not the bad circumstances. He isn't rattling off how everything is wrong with these areas in his life. The first thing that he wants to talk about is where are you? How long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to turn your face away from me? He doesn't just feel these things. We can feel these things and, and have wrong feelings and, uh, and give wrong expression to these feelings or bottle these feelings up and not give expression to them at all. But the psalmist doesn't just feel these things. He doesn't just express them. He gives holy expression to these feelings. These, these psalms are recorded so that the whole range of human emotions can be gathered up appropriately and offered up to God in prayer. So he's not just blurting out in his pain. He's not just venting. He isn't just venting that helps him feel better therapeutically. He's praying. Even to the God that he feels is absent from him, he's still praying to that God. Still relational for him. It's never right for us to reject God or to sinfully emote against God or to falsely accuse God. But God teaches you through scriptures like these that these are the kinds of feelings that would be normal for us to have as human beings in this world, as one of his people in the world especially. And he teaches you that you should not just bottle these feelings up for shame. And you shouldn't just vent, just look for therapy, inventing. You shouldn't just take counsel in your own soul to figure it out because you're not going to, you're going to be stuck in a cycle of thoughts in that downward cycle. <clears throat> God teaches you that you should give expression through lamentations like this. Not lamentations you're just making up because you're probably going to do it wrong. Lamentations like this that you can and should pray to God using language like this. Pray to the God you feel is absent. Pray to him using this prayer. So what is the psalmist suffering that causes him to lament in this way. It seems kind of nebulous, kind of generic, maybe. But uh, one commentator, uh, Peter Craigie, says what, what I think is probably the best guess here. Um, the distress which the worshiper laments is probably the fear and proximity of death brought on, perhaps, by grave illness. I think it's the best guess, especially in light of language like you see in verses 3 and 4, the next couple of verses that we'll look at in just a minute. In the Bible, death is the big enemy. Death is the last enemy of God's people that ultimately God will destroy. But it's the big scary one that's still out in front of all of us. And the apparent exaltation of this enemy over us, this inescapable enemy, is distressing. That's putting it mildly. In the face of death, the fear that God has forgotten us, when you're looking at your own death out there in front of you, or even the death of loved ones. Um, the fear of death and the fear that God has forgotten us in the face of death and he's hidden his face away from us 
and, and that's why we're dying or we can't hope for anything beyond this life, that would be pure anguish to believe that God had forgotten us in the face of that enemy. It would be pure anguish. And so this 5th century uh, theologian Hesychius of Jerusalem said that the forgetfulness of God would be a very serious thing, even temporarily, it would mean death. If God had forgotten you even for a moment, you would be dead. So the definition of death is that he hasn't kept you in his mind. Biblically speaking, being forgotten by God is the very definition of death and hell. And the closest that Christians ever come to hell is in this life, And it's in the agonizing anxiety of imagining that God has abandoned us. Made especially painful when our enemies are gloating over us. And they look unstoppable to us. So Bonhoeffer, I sent this out in the email newsletter this week. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his little book on the Psalms uh, says, Where do you find more miserable, more wretched, more depressing words than in the Psalms of Lamentation? There you see into the heart of all the saints, as into death, even as into hell. The Psalms give us ample instruction on how to come before God in a proper way, bearing the frequent suffering which this world brings upon us. They do not deny it or try to deceive us about it with pious words. They allow it to stand as a severe attack on the faith. There is in the Psalms no quick and easy resignation to suffering. There is always struggle anxiety, doubt. The Psalms don't just paper over the sufferings and the difficulties and the deep anxiety that we have. Psalms like this are teaching us how to be honest about our pain, what the real pain is, what we should be feeling, honest about our doubt. It's normal for us to to have doubts like this. Psalms like this are teaching us what, what is normal for Christians to feel and how Christians should express those feelings. So the most acute struggle we can apply this psalm to is when facing death, but you can broaden it out to apply to any suffering when God seems silent or absent. But it's not just a lament. Even in the lament part of Psalm 13, even in those first two verses, there's a note of hope because the psalmist is still talking to God. Psalmist is still talking to God. He hasn't just kept his own counsel. He's praying now. The psalmist believes that there will be an end to these things. Right? He doesn't just complain. He doesn't just express frustration. He asks God, how long? That's a specific question. He's not... Maybe the psalmist says it in other places, you know, why? Or just, ugh. You know, but he's... He's not just expressing frustration. He's asking God, how long? He believes that there will be an end. So we were watching the new season of Marvel's uh, Daredevil on Netflix. And if you don't know, uh, Daredevil is a superhero in a fictional borough of New York City. He has a a radioactive substance dumped on him. That's his origin story, like it is for probably a lot of the superheroes in Marvel's comic universe. Radioactive substance dumped on him. It blinds him, but it also heightens all of the other senses, senses, gives them a sort of superhuman uh, boost to his other senses. Um, One of my uh, high school PE teachers and coaches 
said, uh, sadly, one day, he said, you know, the Oregon State doesn't allow us to play dodgeball anymore because it's too violent, too dangerous. So we've got a new game called Spatial Awareness, and it's the same rules as dodgeball. <laughs> so have fun. Uh, Daredevil has complete and total spatial awareness. He would rock at dodgeball. Nothing, he, he just knows everything that's going on around him in every direction, uh, not just in the room, but outside the room. He can hear it, he can sense it. And so, and uh, you know, he's, he's like a good fighter, man. And he's Catholic, so he's a good guy, right? Uh, in this season of Daredevil, one of his arch enemies, Wilson Fisk, also known as Kingpin, totally gets the upper hand. And there's several episodes, episode after episode, Daredevil is just left worse and worse off. He's beaten up very badly. Uh, he's framed for murders in ways that just get your blood boiling. And he's on the run. He's chased by the FBI. He's despised by the public. Everybody turns against him. They think, actually, he's the villain. And Wilson Fisk is the good guy. Wilson, Wilson Fisk has him all fooled in that way. So he's despised by everybody. He's, he's outsmarted. And he's foiled by his enemy again and again. And I'm watching this with terrible angst. It really gets to me. <laughs> but somewhere in the back of my mind, I know it's going to turn around because Marvel does that with their, with their shows, their seasons, and their, their movies. They always turn it around at the end, for the most part. They turn the story around at the end. And I just wanted to know, how long does he have to suffer like this till, he, till it turns around and his enemy is exposed and defeated and things get set back right. How long? I can't wait for it to happen. How long will the enemy gloat over him? There is implicit in the question, how long, an expectation that something will eventually change in the future. So you know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. Why hasn't it happened yet? How long until it happens? But there is an expectation that things will get better at some unknown future point. It is not the conclusion that God is ultimately silent or absent. The psalmist still prays to the God that he feels is absent, and he still believes that God will eventually set things right, but right now it hurts, and there's angst, and there's confusion, and there's insecurity, and it's mingled with doubt, so the psalmist petitions God, he says in verses 3 and 4, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So if Peter Craigie, the commentator, is right, <clears throat> and the psalmist is specifically facing imminent physical death, then he's asking God to hear him and answer him, and spare him and save him from death. And if it's a bit more poetic and metaphorical, which I think actually both can be true, then he's asking God to come to him in such a way that makes him spiritually alive, alive to God, and to assure him of God's presence and favor in the face of what seems like death, the, the abandonment, the apparent absence of God. He's saying, I'm tempted to believe that you've forgotten me. Make me to know that you haven't forgotten me. I'm tempted to believe that you've hidden your face from me. Make me to know that you have turned your face toward me in favor. 
It would crush me to believe that death had the final victory, that ultimately I would be separated from you, whether we're talking about in this life or in the next. Oh Lord, you cannot let my enemies have the victory. You cannot let them gloat over me. It's crushing me. I believe. Help my unbelief because I struggle with that. Look at me and consider me and have mercy on me and answer me and light up my eyes with a vision of yourself that keeps me from death. It's, it's like Paul prays in Ephesians 1. Enlighten the eyes of my heart. Make me to know that my relationship with you is secure and that nothing can threaten it because if you don't, circumstances are testifying to me that, that the enemy is winning. If you don't make me to know that my relationship with you is secure, that you haven't forgotten me, that you haven't abandoned me, the enemy will win. Don't let this end in our separation. Don't let it end in our separation. So it's a bold prayer that God gives us. You're invited to make this prayer. It's bold, especially when you consider that it's sinners who deserve separation from God who are making this prayer. I deserve separation from God for my rebellion against God, and he's telling me to pray, don't let this end in our separation. God put this prayer in the Psalms so that we could impose upon him by it. So that we could make demands of him by it. He gave us this prayer so that we could wrestle with him and demand that he answer us. It's, it's like Jacob. You might think Jacob was just being impertinent in his wrestling with God. Who are you to start wrestling with God? But really what was happening was God was condescending to wrestle with Jacob. He even let Jacob prevail. That's what he says. And he renames Jacob Israel, which means he wrestles with God, he strives with God. That's the privilege that God gives us. That's the kind of relationship that he brings us into and says with prayers like this, you use this prayer to wrestle with me. He's condescending and he's giving us that privilege. And Bonhoeffer says that we have this psalm and others like it to do battle against God for God. To do battle against God for God. To wrestle with God. For God. So the beauty of this psalm is that the exact same help that was available to the psalmist is available to us. It's not just something written 3,000 years ago by a king in the ancient Near East. The psalmist doesn't say, this isn't his resource, this isn't what he's relying on. He doesn't say, answer me, hear my prayer, don't let my enemy have the victory over me, don't let this end in our separation, show yourself to me in a way that keeps me alive spiritually, and then say, then when I asked, I had this vision, and God appeared in a cloud of glory, and in that very moment I had this experience that overwhelmed all my doubts and all my fears, and from then on I never had to struggle with God in prayer again forever, because I had such an ecstatic epiphany. No, he very simply relies on what he already knows about God. It's what he already knows. God has already made known to him. God has made himself known for salvation. God has made himself known for relationship 
in the scriptures. Right? God has not been silent. It might feel like he's been silent. He has not been silent. God has spoken. And the psalmist now says, I'm going to listen. I'm going to trust what I already know about you. He turns away from the intuitive counsel that's going on within his own soul. And he looks to what God has said for his counsel. It says in in verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the psalmist would have known all of this because of the scriptures. He would have known at least the first part of what we call now the Old Testament. It's a definitive part of the story of God's people that he would have known that God is the kind of God who hears their cry. The the cry of his people hears their cry for deliverance. He remembers them and he saves them. That's what kind of God we have. After the people of Israel, scroll way back to the beginning of Exodus, the second book in the scriptures, early on in, in the dealings of God with his people, after the people of Israel had been afflicted for 400 years in Egypt, talk about a sense of being abandoned by God, in slavery in Egypt as a whole, as an entire people, for 400 years. It says that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered. He saw the people, and he knew. It's not that he hadn't been paying attention before. It's not that he actually forgot his people. It might have felt that way to them. He hadn't actually forgotten them. He's always had them in his mind. In fact, early on, back in the book of Genesis, early on he had told his people well in advance that all of this was going to happen. You're going to be in slavery for 400 years. And then I'll do something about it. But this, where it says God remembered and he saw and he knew, it's a way of saying then it became evident to the people that he remembered them because he took action and he saved them. Because that's what kind of God he is. He's a savior of his people. God delivers them from his enemies. He brings his people to the promised land to dwell with them, to be with them, to turn his face toward them. God never abandons his people. Never, never even for a moment. If it ever seems like God has abandoned his people, it's only a setup for dramatic deliverance so that his people can know him more deeply and more profoundly as, as he is, as, as their savior. That's who this God proves himself to be time and again throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of his dealings with his people. The God of steadfast love, the God of salvation who dealt bountifully with us, the psalmist says. <clears throat> so in Exodus 34, God is revealing himself And he says, the Lord, the Lord. He's using his personal covenant name, Yahweh. He's revealing himself for relationships so that his people can know who he is. He's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's the kind of language that the psalmist uses. He says, that's what I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust your steadfast love. That's what he holds on to. That's what he determines to hold on to over and against the cycle of his own counsel. Am I praying to nothing? Nothing, because you're not there. 
over and against that, he determines to hold on to what he knows about God because God has made it known, because God has not been silent. God's history with his people is clear. The exact same help that, that was available to the psalmist then is available to us. Actually, the, the exact same help and better. Better, because the Exodus, as great as it was, as big a deal as it is, in the history of the world and in the history of the Old Testament, every, that, that salvation and every other little salvation in the Old Testament, they were just precursors to the great salvation that, that we know in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because 400 years after the last prophets fell silent, a long, long time to feel like God was absent, 400 years after he had last spoken by the mouth of his prophets, God remembered his people and he acted to save them and to make himself known as Savior through his Son, Jesus Christ. This was the answer to all the prayers of God's people. How long? That was the answer. At just the right time, Jesus came. The Son of God became one of us. He joined us in our plight. He even took our suffering to himself. He prayed for God's deliverance, and he heard only dreadful silence in the dark. And yet he went forward to face his enemies with confidence in God, because of who he knows God to be, knowing that even though he went to his death, it wouldn't end there. He went to the grave, which the scriptures say, that's the place of forgottenness. If there's any place where God forgets people, it's when they're in the grave, even in hell. But God did not forget him there either. Death would not have the final victory over him. God raised him from the dead and lit up his eyes with a vision of himself. And it happened to him, so we can know it will happen to us. God has not forgotten him. He will not, forgot, he will not forget us. Because we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us, we can know that God has remembered us. And he always remembers us. God has not hidden his face from us. He has smiled upon us in Jesus Christ. God has not let our enemy be exalted over us. He has conquered even death in Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead. He has considered and answered us, and his answer is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. God with us, not God forgotten us, not God abandoned us. God with us. This is the truth. He has not been silent. He has not abandoned us. Even if it feels that way, he's revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Since his death, since his resurrection, since his ascension, it's been 2,000 years. And we've been waiting a long time to see Jesus again, to see Jesus return as he has promised and there are plenty of times when it has been appropriate for us to lament, how long are you going to delay your return, O Lord? But there will be an end to the waiting. You are going to see Jesus someday. Even if it seems like he's silent and absent, he's actually near. He's watching, and he knows everything. 
He's setting everything up for the big moment when his people will see him, and then they'll know their Savior forever. Your heart shall rejoice in his salvation, and you will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with you. So you need to live with that sure hope in your heart and trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you invite us to bring our our pain to you, to wrestle with you in prayer. You've condescended to us and given us the privilege of wrestling with you, even to the point where we prevail against you in order to get you for you so that you can reveal yourself to us more deeply, this one with whom we wrestle. You have heard, you have considered, you have answered us in Jesus Christ And you will do so once and for all at the end of time. You've said that you would never leave us or forsake us, even if it feels that way. We believe it because of Jesus. We pray that you would help our unbelief. Help us to find our joyful confidence in him, in the sure word of your grace through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.